0: Taking stock with Mandy Johnston thanks to Skillnet Ireland driving business success through innovative training and upskilling
1: This is News Talk You're
2: welcome to News Talks Taking Stock I'm Mandy Johnston, and this is the programme that takes a deeper look into some of the week's events and a wider view of the world of business and the politics around us. Coming up on today's programme, it's been a very rough few months for the United Kingdom. Their longest serving British monarch has passed away. Their shortest serving prime minister has quit. So I'll be joined by Will Hutton, Guardian and Observer columnist, to get his views on Rishi Sunak and the cabinet that he's created. And we'll be finding out what it all means for Northern Ireland. And we look at how women perform in sports sponsorship and in the world of politics because the Irish women's national team are set to pocket more than 1 million euro in prize money for the FAI by qualifying for next year's World Cup finals Ian Malin, sports columnist with The Examiner will join us to ask whether women can compete for sponsorship on the same terms as their male counterparts and from the sports field to the political field with new quotas set for female political representation set to kick in next year I'll be talking to the CEO of Women for Election and the former Justice Minister Nora Owen about just how successful quotas are at actually changing the type of representation that we get You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. So first up today, we're going to start with that issue of gender quotas in politics. In 2012, a new law came in which said that political parties had to have at least 30% female candidates if they were to contest general elections. And those quotas are set to increase next year. The issue of quotas can be a divisive one. Some are completely against them and some people think that introducing a very short, sharp shock to the system is the absolutely only way to redress the imbalance that we see in gender representation. So to discuss the drive to get more women involved in politics and the quota system in in itself, we're joined now by a lady who needs little introduction because she's been extremely successful in politics herself. It's former Minister for Justice Nora Owen and also Katrina Gleeson who's CEO of Women for Election in Ireland. Nora and Katrina, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thank
0: you very Good much, morning, Mandy. Mandy.
2: Now, Nora, I'm going to start with you because you've already done all of the really hard work. You got elected, first of all, and you made it to one of the most important jobs around the Cabinet table. As you look back now, do you think it would be easier or harder as a woman to enter
0: politics now? I think, frankly, it is a bit harder. And I'll tell you why. I think the role of social media in politics has become very difficult to manoeuvre through. It can be very useful, but it also can be very divisive and and particularly difficult for women because it can be used by people who want to uh, denigrate women more so than, I think, men. And so from that point of view, it's harder. The other thing that's making it harder too is that as more and more of the NGOs get uh, more power, There are a lot of women who would prefer to be in an NGO where they have direct access very often to a minister, whereas as a backbench TD, they can have that kind of access very often. So there are women who will choose to stay on the outside. And I say it to women that I meet, I say, you're incredibly important in the group you're working with. Mm. Why don't you bring that expertise into politics. And they more or less say to me, well, I don't think I'd get as much done if I was inside politics. And that's a serious situation, Mandy.
2: Katrina, that's an interesting perspective, isn't it, that you can be feel at least more powerful outside of political representation than you are in it?
3: Well, that's very interesting, um, Mandy and Nora, because I have come from the, the, the advocacy sector and coming into, we're in a national... Um, a non-for-profit organisation Women for Election but for me the driving ambition to join Women for Election was because what I saw the difference it made when there was more women in the Shannon when i was leading work on criminalizing coercive control in, in in 2016 and having a critical mass of women there meant for the first time we were actually getting to the table and being heard so that's why i came across to the to women for election but it is a really an interesting point and and it's one of the challenges that i think we have in women for election women are running ireland in communities and in organisations, in in business, in in our health services, but we're not at the key decision making tables, and that's the challenge essentially that Women for Election have taken on to to make that difference mm. and to you know to work to redesign politics in Ireland effectively. Uh, mm. We didn't design in for women in a hundred years ago when 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 we were um, creating the free state, and so now is the time that we need to really put in every effort possible to get get to the situation where we have a, a parity in politics, we have equality in, in gender equality and diversity in politics. We have 37 women in the doll at the moment. and in 1992 we had 20. Um, mm. So we, we've had a very slow um, incline, but that that jump from 1992 to now is because, mainly because of the quotas and also work that groups like Women for Election have been doing to encourage and attract and support and inspire more women to get involved in politics. Yeah.
0: But, but could I come in on that? Of course Christina? you can. Because, yeah. yep. um, there's no guarantee that those 37 women will hold their seats the next time. And the danger is that if women lose their seat, it immediately allows people to say, oh look, they're not going to make it in politics. One of the difficulties I have with the, the way in which the parties are exercising the quota in which they have to put so many women on the tickets is that very often um, a woman is put on the ticket at a point when there isn't a hope in hell that she will win the seat, because there's already somebody else on the ticket and she's being put on in order for the party to reach that crucial quota to get the, the state money, as it were. Yeah. And, and that worries me. And I would like to see, I mean, I sat on a thing called the Democracy Commission way back with David Beggs, and they, they were pushing very hard for kind of dedicated seats in the, in the doll and I was very much against that. I think the onus is on the political parties, but because we have the multi-seat constituencies, it's very easy for a party to reach the quota number Mm. but really not have somebody in a seat they can win. And I'd like to see the parties saying, we will only get one, you know, we're working out, we will get one seat in this constituency and we will run a good woman candidate or a good man candidate. But I mean, you know, you have to be ready to make those kind of difficult decisions.
2: That's a really interesting point, Katrina, isn't it? Like parties can make up the numbers and make it look okay. But at the end of the day, is there any... Um, evidence to show that if they get on the ticket uh, they can actually get elected like if we're looking at the quotas since two thousand and twelve, how successful are women at actually getting elected when they're compared to their male counterparts? Is it making any difference?
3: Oh, the numbers are there. So, I mean, I, I hear what Nora's saying, and certainly when the um, the quotas were introduced in twenty sixteen and even twenty twenty, they're they're a new they're a new uh, tool in terms of of pushing for gender equality, and and not you know nobody's a big fan of having to have them. They are that sharp shock that is needed to to rebalance what has been a hundred years essentially of of a male quota in Irish politics. Um, So what we're seeing in the last, particularly in the last few years is because we're now moving to the 40% level in in 2023, so after February 2023, it's it's going to be 40% in the next general election. What that means is parties have to put 40% of their candidates as female. At least, or forty percent of their candidates is male, at least. And what that then then means is you don't put out a weak team mm. at forty percent. And so what we're seeing is that you know, there was a lot of problems in twenty sixteen. There was, I think, it was a shock in terms of culture for parties. So there was last minute additions to to tickets, and that's what Nora's saying. There, and I totally agree with her. Uh, so the political parties, it's on them. Um, and I think um we're seeing that change. You know, there's there's a lot of initiatives across all parties now to make sure that they're actually supporting greater diversity in terms of candidates. So I'm actually taking more heart and seeing there's a lot more change internally where we work very closely as a non-partisan organisation we work very closely across all of the political parties and with independents and we can see that, that those efforts are now being put in more. Of course there's pushback. Of course there's people who have an expectation that they're going to be in line for the next seat and and traditionally that has been inherited in a lot of areas by men and passed on to other men. So it's it's those interventions The political parties need to be very strong on and agree with Nora on that but the quotas do work.
2: Nora, I might bring you back in here beyond beyond quotas what else can political parties do what else can organisations uh, like Katrina's do to actually try and practically help women to one get involved and two run in for office?
0: Well I was thinking of some of the things that might prevent some women from you know who want to get into politics they might have to review for example their situation with regard to childcare or maybe they're caring for an older parent or an older relative. Um, there's also the issue of finance. Um, I remember way back when I started in 1979 as a counsellor, um, I was full-time at home minding my children and um, you know, the first thing I did with my husband was to work out what finance I could have so that I could attend meetings, drive my car, fill it with petrol, um, and and go into council meetings because I wasn't actually earning a, a separate salary. So there are things like that that might get in the way. And, so, uh, you know, a party or, or an individual independent person wants to stand. Men and women, but mainly women, have to look at the things that might become an issue. And can they work out that they have somebody who can do the the childcare when they need it and that is that is there's no point in pretending otherwise now there are single women who go into politics too but i i would say to katrina that a lot of the women who've got elected have got elected in smaller parties, the bigger parties seem to be the, well, what what were the bigger parties, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael uh, seem to be the ones that are probably not getting the right percentage of women in, but the independent parties and the smaller parties are just running a single candidate Mm. and um, you know, that's an important element of it and I hope Mm. that as I say, I don't want to repeat it again, but I hope that uh, the Fianna Fáils and the Fine Gael people, when they're looking at the tickets for the next election, that they will be making the decisions that say we really will make an effort to get more women. It does make a difference with the policy, with the policy platform. And I have to tell you, Mandy, I came across Countess Markovic's speech back in, in what year was it? It was 19, um, 1918. And it was very interesting. She says... Don't trust," you. She said. talks about walking around Ireland in short skirts and strong boots and leave your jewels and gold wands in the bank. Well, that's a bit outdated. And she said, buy a revolver, which I definitely am not advocating. But she says, don't trust to your feminine charm and your capacity for getting on the soft side of men, but take up your responsibilities and be prepared to go your own way, depending for, sa- for safety on your own courage, your own truth and your own common sense. So in a way, you have to have the confidence to say, I can do this. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm as good as anybody else, man or woman, who's putting themselves forward. I can do this. Yeah. There's, no, there's no actual degree to get you into politics. There's no false course, as we used to say. But So anything you've done in your life before you stand for politics is a good start for getting into politics.
2: It sure is. Look, it's a tough business, Katrina, Mm. for people to get into and Nora's right. Like, you've got to be tough. You've got to have your own kind of self-confidence. but that's where your organization. Well, that's comes, where we come it?
3: into it, and, and I suppose over ten years now, we've been actually, you know, really building a tool a, a toolkit of resources for women to literally make politics more accessible, but to equip them and to inspire them and support them to actually be prepared for down from down to the basic nuts and bolts of how do you go about a campaign, how do you get a, how do you get selected in a party, how do you you know how do you get your communication um, your message out, how do you sell yourself? Like we're really good as women at selling other people, but selling ourselves is, is sometimes a little. A bit more challenging. And I think, you know, some of the things, um, I mean, I've just come today from a, a programme that we've just started with, Meta in terms of safer politics and looking to equip politicians with the tools to actually be in the public sphere, on on social media, but in a way that they're actually more protected. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of tools that are coming through to do that and a lot of supports. But I mean, it does take shifts within the political parties and I absolutely agree with Nora on that. I am saying that we're seeing a, sh- a change. Perhaps the quotas are driving that. Um, I, I think they are there's also leadership in the parties that know that the country's changing. Ireland has changed, thankfully, uh, from even 20 years ago and 30 years ago. So people are voting for a difference now, and they want to see greater diversity on on, on the tickets. They want to see they want to see themselves represented in politics, and and that's yeah. you know that's some of the thing the strengths we can play to now.
2: Yeah, and I think that that idea of seeing someone in a position can really kind of make a difference. I remember going into politics in 1997 into Leinster House when. uh, in 95 actually when you Nora were were Minister for Justice and thinking wow you know actually there might have been less women but for me when I look back at that period there seemed to be far more influential women in positions of of power you know so yeah I I think I think I
0: think Mandy too that sometimes a woman's voice seems to come across clearer Um, you know when you listen to radio and television there are times when people will kind of sit up and notice when a woman is speaking But women also have to be ready not to be good, you know, to make mistakes and and find yourself, you know, maybe not being able to answer the questions you're being asked. But it shouldn't put you off. There are lots of men who find themselves not being able to answer the questions, but it doesn't seem to bother them too much. I remember as an example... uh, Going on Morning Ireland, or agreeing to go on Morning Ireland after a big meeting in at the European Union, and I was all set, and I knew what I wanted to talk about. And during the night, I'd agreed like seven o'clock the previous evening. But during the night, there were riots and very difficult drug things going on in the inner city and of course by the time I got on to Morning Ireland they had no interest in what was going on at EU level, they wanted to know what was I doing about the riots that had happened in in the inner city and I was barely briefed on it because it had only happened like at 12 o'clock at night and and I realised that I was not well briefed to do that and in fact one woman said to me, I didn't think you knew very much about that and she was absolutely right I didn't But And that's what you've got to get used to, that something will completely change in a matter of hours and you have to be ready for, you know, being able to to talk on your feet.
2: I've heard that from a lot of journalists, actually, who are wanting to go on the air, that they put far more emphasis on being 100% right, 100% of the time, maybe their male counterparts don't have that. I just want to finish off with you, Katrina. Um, Are you seeing... um, more people interested more women interested in getting involved in politics at, at, at each level and do you think the quotas when they change in February will make a big difference?
3: Yes and yes and I'm just like last night I was in Tullamore and we had a room of women who were actually really keen to run Nora you'd be delighted to hear Good. keen to run so they're not just coming up to into our, like our programmes are designed for anyone who wants to get involved to help more women get involved we've loads of different options and, and most of them are free but there's women women are hungry and I think I think actually from women in the most senior um, levels in corporate Ireland now across women working in frontline services, COVID has really shown us how women are absent from the decision making tables that affect all our lives and there's a hunger there that we've certainly not seen as much of previously in Women for Elections. So so we're seeing it, our Zoom rooms were full for two years when women had time to actually come online and, and train and so we're seeing a greater supply coming in. We want to double the number of women, female candidates on the ticket for the local elections in 2024. We'd like to see quotas in local elections without not there yet, but we want to double it. So in Offaly last night, you know, we have quite a number of women who are serious about actually getting involved in running. And if you consider in Offaly, there was eight candidates who were women out of 36 in, in 2019. We're hoping we'll get that to a doubling 50% in, in, in 2024, because we're putting yeah. the work in to bring in mm. women from everywhere um, and from all walks of life, great diversity. And, and that's what, I mean, there's so many people that need to be able to engage in politics like never before and that's our role to interact them in.
2: Well, look, thank you both very much for those very valuable insights and sound advice from you, Nora, not to go out and buy a gun. For now, that's uh, Katrina Gleeson, CEO of Women for Election in Ireland and former Justice Minister Nora Owen. Thank you both very
0: much. Thank you, Thank
3: you, you, Maddie Thank you, Katrina. Thank you, Nora. News Talks,
2: weekend of winning. We have a very special bank holiday weekend prize that you and your family will never forget. It's an amazing family trip for two adults and two children to Disneyland Paris. This includes return flights to Paris with coach transfers to Disneyland. Three nights bed and breakfast in Disney's Hotel New York, The Art of Marvel. Theme park passes for four days and €500 spending money. To enter, just answer this question. Who is Mickey Mouse's sweetheart? Is it A, Minnie or B, Pluto? Text the word PLAY and then A or B to 57557. That's 57557. Cost is €2.50 plus your standard message rate to play. You have to be over 18 years old. You're playing across the Golard network of stations, Full terms are on the website at Newstalk.com. Get your entry in by 10pm on Monday night. Text PLAY and A or B to 57557. This is Mandy Johnston with you on Talk's Taking Stock. Coming up next, the women's national team landed itself in some hot water recently by its own dressing room celebrations. Will it fade in the memory of sponsors or could it cost their brand dearly? Find out after the break. You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. Now before the break, we heard about women in politics and recently the Irish women's national team became a bit of a political football itself for its dressing room antics. It got us thinking here on the show about what all of this might mean to both the brand for the individual players and the national team itself. I'm joined now by Ian Mallon, the sports columnist with The Examiner and former consultant on business and communication strategy with UEFA. Thanks, Mandy. Um, all right. So first up today, uh, Ian, what do FIFA actually give the teams who qualify in terms of money? Do we know that yet?
4: Yeah. So they, uh, it's not been announced just yet um, and it's due to come out right now uh, as soon as the draw was done, but it'll be about 1.2, 1 to 1.2 million euros. Not a huge amount when comparable to the men's team who, for, let's say, our most uh, recognisable previous tournament, uh, Euro 2026, with the men's team, they got an initial payment of about £9 for qualifying for France.
2: Wow, that's a big difference. Big difference. Presumably, though, if they progress through the competition there is a tiered arrangement where they get more is that right? There
4: will be a tiered arrangement the details of which haven't been announced either but I would uh, 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 estimate that it will go up about half a million to 750,000 for round two and then upwards again of maybe up to a million for the quarter finals.
2: Okay but still nowhere near the men's competition. All right. So just let's look at the women's team in terms of their sponsorship. So the FAI announced earlier this year that they were separating out the sponsorship deals and it was a big deal. They got a big sponsor. Tell us about that and how much they actually secured for the sponsorship of the women's team alone.
4: Yeah, Manny. So from where I come from, I look at it from uh, a sponsorship side and from a commercial side. And the commercial side of the Irish women's national team is fascinating. Not as much for the growth. As for how uh, separate, as you say, it is now from the men's team previously, the FAI would get a main headline sponsor for the association and for all teams. Um, Unfortunately for them, uh, the last couple of years have been quite challenging in that they haven't been able to get a, a sponsor in for the men's side. That's down to a number of reasons. One was price. The price was too high. It was at two and a half million per annum, and that didn't come down for about a year and a half. By the time they brought that down, Uh, The team weren't playing particularly well and obviously the, the value in any sports sponsorship is that the team or the individual is performing on the track or on the field. In the meantime, the women's team uh, since the appointment of Vera Pau in 2019 has been on an upward trajectory. Vera Pau has been a fantastic uh, ambassador as well as a manager for that team and in her first attempt almost got to the Euros uh, and this time around as we saw last Tuesday, uh, on the 18th of October qualified for the World Cup, a first World Cup for an Irish women's team, a phenomenal achievement. So for the previous 12 months they have had their own sponsor unlike the men's team which is unique in European football and I can't find too many examples of it in world football either where the women's team has the sponsor and the men's doesn't and isn't it something to say uh that it's coming here particularly everything that went on in 2017 with the women's national team and and, and all that went with that uh so fantastic story uh sky uh, ireland came in in september 2021 with the uh sponsorship they were in negotiations with the fai for a very short period during that time they were asked do you want to men would you like to cover the men's team as well and they politely declined J.D. Buckley, to his credit, uh, spotted the opportunity here and could see a sporting asset that was going to uh, rise very quickly and very substantially. Um, within within that uh, negotiation, uh, Buckley and Sky managed to get themselves a very good deal, so in the low six figures, which is really you know phenomenal when the FAI had been at the same time advertising to the market, the men's team, for £2.5 million, which uh, a great bit of business and a four-year contract. Mm. The uh, team will probably, there will obviously have been bonus payments due from Sky Ireland on qualification for the World Cup, but those sort of payments are, dare I say it, easy in times of huge success.
2: Yeah, now that standalone agreement that that the women's team got was quite a departure and we'll talk about the sponsorship or lack of it for the men's team in a moment but what did Sky uh, make of the incident that happened last month in the dressing room and the celebrations that happened in Hampden Park?
4: So really you couldn't make the stuff up that happened uh, in the early hours of the uh, 19th of October I think the morning after uh, or in the late hours of, of, of post, uh, post-match. Um, so... Um, as we know now, and, and it got a, an awful lot of volume and an awful lot of activity for the pictures and the scenes of the players singing the uh, traditional wolf tones up the Ra chant. Um, which I do think, and I think most people do think, was clumsy, uh, silly, uh, but really not uh, as bad as as some have made out now. Yeah,
2: and we had a lot of discussion about what it means for generational politics and all of that, but what does it mean to sponsors? Were Sky at all affected by it?
4: So Sky had had major activation plans planned for the day after uh, and this would have been the prime moment for them in the lifetime of their 13-month sponsorship so far, the day after qualifying for World Cup. It's a a once-in-a-lifetime, perhaps, opportunity for a sponsor. They obviously had to be abandoned. Um, Sky, uh, Ireland, I'm sure, were... um, uh, not overly concerned about those those activations, more so what it meant for the brand. Where will the story go? And the story really had, a, a at some point that morning, there, there was a danger that it could spiral completely out of control. How would the um, the UK react? How would the English react? And England, don't forget, are very influential in UEFA and in FIFA. And if they made a song and dance, and if their associations made a song and dance about it, and the Scottish, and even the Welsh, there would have been uh, a lot more fire fuel to this fire. What happened next was the ultimate, would you believe, when Sky UK uh, seemed to save the day inadvertently in that, um, first of all, of course, uh, you had Vera Powell's remarks um, when the team returned and she faced the press and gave this really brilliant, really strong, really candid no excuses style interview uh, type of interview and let's not even get into the reasons for it. It shouldn't have happened. And uh, I thought that was a huge uh, moment, f- a forward momentum for them after a really, really difficult 12 hours. Then, uh, to her immense credit, Chloe mustaki came out and did an interview with Sky Sports News. I don't know whose idea that, that was. You can imagine it was run through the FBI Communications Department and to that, their immense credit. Um, and... Uh, in fairness to Chloe Mistaki talked a little bit about football we didn't see much of that in any of the clips that went around it was the three questions uh, from Rob Upton on what happened that night uh, the night before and in fairness to her she accepted it was shouldn't have happened uh, apologised uh, and a uh, follow up question and then the third question which was the one that really nailed it and that third question was did the players need to be educated and with a, a very uh, brilliant response from Chloe.
2: Yeah, she, she ha- certainly handled herself very well. Mm. And it didn't affect, ultimately, the Sky sponsorship, did it? They're sticking with the, the team and, and and they're happy to continue. No, Mandy, not at all. Not at all. Um,
4: the, the, uh, from what I can gather, Skyers 100% committed, even as, men- as much committed as before. What I do think, and there is uh, maybe, um, well, we won't see this for some time, but with the women's na- national team and with the achievements of what they've done with the players and the individuals and personalities involved they are as close to what the FAI could come to GAA or rugby in that big big brands love yeah. GAA love rugby for the wholesomeness of it they don't love men's soccer uh, as much um but this team for the first time had turned heads across across cities and towns with with the very big brands to the big large insurance companies the large financial uh Companies and um, when the controversy uh, went public from the dressing room, that will have caused quite a bit of uh, jittery uh, reaction, I'm sure, in in marketing departments. But
2: is your sense that it will just, you know, it'll all die down and that they'll get that back again? Let's talk about the individual players, Ian. What do you think that they might expect from sponsors as they go towards the World Cup in New Zealand and Australia?
4: Yeah, that's a really interesting question because I mean, if you look at our nearest uh, neighbours, England, who won the European Championships last year, obviously we're talking about hugely different marketplaces massively different uh, some of our players uh, play in England some of them still play in Ireland uh, the uh, say let's take Lucy bronze for example uh, in an England player who has just landed a Gucci contract has landed a Nike contract has landed a I think coca-cola contract that sort of stuff will our players get those no they won't will they increase their own personal worth some of them will some of them will 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 achieve uh will achieve uh commercial value uh, it won't be anything like the US or the 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 English as i say or even the norwegian players But what they are doing is they're making more than they did before. They've got opportunities now that they've never had before. And as we get closer to a World Cup, individual brands will come to a lot of those players. Now, they'll have to be careful, of course, if they're working, if they they are playing for the Republic of Ireland, they are obviously representing the FAI as well as the as well as the nation. And they'll have to be just careful how they subtly don't cross paths with too many of the brands that the FAI have on board. Luckily for them, uh, and not for the FAI, the FAI don't have a lot of. They have sixteen partners and associates. Uh, some of them provide services like DHL, and others provide fees. Um, so they will be able to they will be able to work out their own deals through their own agents and um, make a few bob.
2: Okay, that's good news for them. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks taking stock with me, Mandy Johnston and I'm talking to Ian Mallon who's sports columnist with The Examiner and sports analyst about sports sponsorship. Ian, I just want to turn briefly back to that issue of the men's soccer team if I can because Jonathan Hill's record as a a commercial world football supremo is secure and that's one of the reasons I guess why he got the job in the first place was to try and, um, and bring about those type of commercial deals. Why do you think that they haven't secured anything to date and do you think what's your prediction for them getting something in the near future
4: Uh, Jonathan Hill has a very strong background with the FA in in England and during um, uh, European Championships previously now we touched on this previously, Mandy. That the markets are completely different. You cannot compare the FA to the FAI. You cannot commercial, uh, compare the commercial value of both. So, is Jonathan,
2: that to, can I just ask you: Is that to do with the reputational issues? Is it to do with the performance of the team? Is it to do that we don't have a kind of a an internationally known manager? as a combination of all that? Is there? Is there? Is there? Is there any other reasons, or what are the reasons that you think that he's not being successful, or doesn't have that Midas touch here?
4: Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's incomparable. You're right, it's a combination of everything. We don't have the Harry Canes and the superstars that England have. You look at every single position, every single player that gets on that plane for Qatar, all 23 of them for England are superstars. They're pretty much household names here. We're struggling a little bit at the moment and Stephen Kenny seems to be bringing his team and his squad in in an upward direction too, albeit at a much different sort of scale. Also the uh, market size is much different huge uh, England will get 90,000 in Wembley for every match no matter what mm. uh, we will struggle to get full houses in the Aviva for the foreseeable future the good news on that front uh, is that we've got France coming up in the European uh, champion, uh, European the Euros qualifiers next year um and uh, Holland as well so um the 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 two the two teams are incomparable the two marketplaces are incomparable Jonathan has struggled here in Ireland for a number of reasons one the back of, and in fairness to him, he doesn't uh, lay blame too much on the catastrophe that he came in on the back of, but also he was brought in to bring in sponsors mm. and we have now, he's now two years in the job on November the 1st and he hasn't brought in a headline sponsor and that as I pointed out earlier is a lot to do with pricing uh, some of that was out of con- his control and maybe there's a lot to do with what's going on at the board in the FIA, which does seem to be fracturing a little bit at the moment and there seems to be more and more influence being wielded there by uh, its chairman uh, so the usual sort of uh, fun and games in the FIA that haven't gone away and continue to, to um to, uh, I won't say unravel, but continue to uh, happen.
2: Well, let's hope they do uh, secure some kind of sponsor for the the team uh, to to support uh, its endeavours at international level. But Ian, just want to have you here. Uh, What's your expectation for this year's World Cup, which is due to start very shortly? Has the controversy around the location uh, affected one, our awareness of it, and two, how has it affected sponsors? Because we've had all of these discussions about human rights issues. Um, What's your assessment of that?
4: That question is a great question coming as it does this week, where you had a British uh, minister, uh, sorry, a, a Westminster minister this week, uh, urging an urgent caution amongst the LGBT uh, football following uh, supporters who might be going to Qatar to uh, follow the local rules uh, in one of the clumsiest uh, responses to uh, a really bad issue that I've ever seen for the big sponsors and the big brands the huge big brands won't make a jot of difference to them if they're involved in the world cup and that's their primary concern the issues around you know slavery and and stadiums being built with multiple lives being lost it's all uh, ir- immaterial to them the social responsibility strategy of all these big brands it's there but it doesn't it doesn't have any effect or won't have any effect uh, the tournament itself I feel will probably run brilliantly uh, as you would expect for something that has been so, so much money invested into it uh, I did notice last night as well that the Welsh uh, footballer Gareth Bale who will be one of the biggest stars at this World Cup has uh, announced that he will wear the uh, rainbow armband which is a direct uh, snub to the local let's say traditions in Qatar and one where he deserves huge credit. And it's not often footballers make political statements. And guess what? FIFA, UEFA, all football organisations hate political statements.
2: Well, no doubt there'll be much to talk about when it does start. But for now, Ian, thank you very much for joining us today. That's Ian Malin, sports columnist for The Examiner. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mandy. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up, the revolving door of UK politics sent Rishi Sunak into number 10 this week. What does his cabinet look like, and what are the odds of him uniting his own party? Find out after the break. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, finally today, just hours after becoming leader of the UK Conservative. Rishi Sunak declared that his party needed, quote, to unite or die. He's trying to end months of internal warfare and he's vowed to build a government, quote, of all the talents, which admittedly is a pretty tall order. To address the collective talents of that new cabinet, I'm joined now by Will Hutton, who's political economist for The Guardian and Observer. And he joins me now. Will, you're very welcome to Taking Stock.
1: I'm pleased to be on your show again, Mandy.
2: Now, the last time you were here, we were both crystal balling about Liz Truss, And you did say that if she implemented all the things she said she was going to do in the budget, she wouldn't last very long. So let's not even... (laughs) Even I didn't
1: think it was going to be that short. (laughs) Let's not
2: talk about her today. Let's try to move forward a little bit. Um, Can you just give us your views on the latest Tory leader? Who is he and what type of leadership do you think we can expect from him?
1: well um he's a hindu and uh that's extraordinary um um but uh, and in, in a way i mean it's such an afterthought in mm. in the commentary that it does show that um in all the criticism external criticism and internal criticism leveled at britain and uh, this is one good thing i think i mean it has we are becoming a genuinely multiracial society um he's very but he is very conservative um, very orthodox um, we, he hasn't said much about policy um, We well, has said two things about policy um, he gave a lecture when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer earlier this year mm. a very famous set piece it's called the May's Lecture which was just reheated retreaded Thatcherism actually it was very very um, disappointing um, and I and, and very unimaginative and actually you know just kind of making genuflecting to fiscal orthodoxy and free markets and his his Freeport idea. But it was as if it was 1985 and nothing had happened in the last 30, 30 years, really. Mm. Um, the other thing he did was, of course, when he was competing with Liz Truss for the leadership of the Tory party, he was vying for the right. And he said some very right-wing things about how keen he would be to send um, asylum seekers back to Rwanda and, you know, in that vein, um, uh, repatriate all EU laws and all of that stuff. Um, Actually, I think he's more pragmatic. um, He's more level-headed. And already there's signs of that, actually, in the first 48 hours of his his prime ministership. So who is he? You know, um, he's clever. um, He's rich. um, He's a teetotaler. Um, he's Hindu. Um, he enjoys his money. He's extraordinarily well dressed. Um, doesn't mind that people see how expensive his shoes are. Um, worked at Goldman Sachs for a period. Um, a hero lionizes uh, um, kind of S- Silicon Valley in California and, and tech. Um, is a fiscal conservative and a, and a free marketeer. But when it comes, when push comes to shove, much more pragmatic than his rhetoric lets on.
2: Hmm. Well, that's positive. Like if somebody's a little bit more pragmatic than what we've seen in recent months, that would be a help.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, that would be a help. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, already, you think signs of that. Actually, um, you'll explore that if you, as you choose.
2: Yeah, back in March, you said that that spring budget he brought in had all the hallmarks of fiscal deceit, political cynicism, and a, showed an astounding lack of imagination. His fiscal policy now will be all about calming the markets. But what about the public? Where do they feature in his plans? Do you think? Do you think he'll do more? to try and arrest the decline of his party in the opinion polls? Well,
1: there's already been a little bit a little bit of a kind of Sunak bounce. I mean, Labour uh, have come back four or five points to kind of 50, 51% in the polls and the Tories have gone up to the low 20s. Um, but still, it's still a gap of 30 points, which is pretty unprecedented. And, mm. um, Look, I mean, he's got, he's got a couple of things um, going for him. I mean, already um, because people think he's a fiscal conservative, the markets have lowered interest rates, at which the government can borrow, and thus mortgage borrowers can borrow. So that's that's a plus. And the other plus, um, and that's going to save some billions of debt service that would otherwise, have, you know, force tax increases or expenditure cuts. And the other thing is, is that the gas price. Well, gas prices. Mm. Come down. So maybe the cost of actually, you know, um, limiting um, per household um, uh, people's gas bills and two and a half thousand pounds will not as expensive as was previously thought. Those are two things in his favour. against that, you know, we've had, I mean, frankly, 15 years of stagnating wages. Um, expenditure cuts that he has to um, put in place are on top of a lot of austerity. And there's really uh, no fat left on the bone. I mean, uh, local government is falling apart. The NHS has got 7 million waiting list and really impacting actually on labor supply. And people can't hire workers because, you know, they're ill and they can't get, they can't chronically ill or cr- suffering chronic, chronic pain and can't get, you know, put right. So, I mean, you know, the the litany of things, I mean, Food banks, you know, um, kids from comparatively modest backgrounds going to school hungry. Um, it's kind of, it's not a great, it's not a great situation. And once once you had an event like the last six weeks, I, mean, I don't know what it's like in the Republic, but I would imagine it's not dissimilar to here. I mean, people don't really watch politics as hawkishly as you and I do. Um, and when it, and, and what's happened has really cut through. You know, I mean, a, a, an unbelievably stupid budget by Liz Truss. She loses the prime ministership in forty-four days. I mean, p- voters remember that, mm. and they won't forget it quickly. So it's a bit like Black Wednesday for John Major back in ninety-two. That happened in September ninety-two, and he was turfed out of office. You know, literally five years later, in ninety-seven. And I, my expectation is that actually the Tories may mount some kind of clawback, um, but it will be damage limitation. And I very much doubt that we'll win the next election.
2: Yeah, he does. He's inherited huge social problems. He's inherited huge fiscal problems. He's also her- inherited a, a, a very fractured party. And Absolutely. The, con- yeah. the, the contest itself, um, do you think that was orchestrated to avoid getting to the party members at all? And is that in itself a signal of how narrow a support base he has, even within the party?
1: Well, he has a real problem with mandate. He is the third prime minister um, since the, you know, Johnson then Trust, now him. And it was very telling um, that Liz Truss pushed through uh, legislation that was going to permit fracking um, to go ahead. And yes, and, and then, you know, he, he was 24 hours in office and he decided to reverse that because the manifesto commitment in 2019 was the Tory party in government is not going to permit fracking unless... Uh, people locally really want to go ahead with it and no one does so it won't happen now, that was quite telling uh that was that was telling you that actually he's mm-hmm. very conscious that he doesn't have a mandate and that he, he has to govern within the mandate won by boris johnson that was it was also very interesting that he appointed um i think almost the only effective uh, minister in the cabinet and um, michael gove um to head up leveling up which was a big commitment by Boris Johnson, and he does want to be caught out on that. Um, so you know he's he's very keen, and mm. uh, no, given the fact he, he wasn't elected even by his own activists, you know he's mandate free. He's, his only mandate is is the is the 200 or so MPs who. And I said, "We we want you as our leader," and that's it. And it's very thin in a democracy, and it's very thin when you have to impose the kind of, kind of, uh, you know, very difficult decisions you have to has to take. Yeah, so, no, it it
2: it's, there's going to be a brutal couple of months for him. But what what does the appointments of the rest of the cabinet say about what he's trying to construct? Bringing people like Suella Braverman back um, doesn't exactly scream "new broom sweeps clean," does it? No, it doesn't.
1: Um, uh, um, but I mean, I, you know, look, uh, there's, some, there's, a, a few, there's two or three people, um, you know, um, who've been very effective ministers. One is a minister of state called George Freeman, who's minister for science. Very effective guy. Was brought back to be wait for it Minister of Science, Michael Gove. I've mentioned mm. he's in in the cabinet as saying, uh, uh, Secretary of State for Leveling Up. He he will make things happen. And um, very interesting appointment of this one, Keegan, um, who's running education. Who left school at sixteen, and he's quite an ambitious program for apprentices and apprenticeships and and workplace training and high tech. Kind of colleges associated with it, with industries. You want, he want she's really going to push, and she's the woman who will do that. So you've got kind of you know there's three competent people: science, education, leveling up in post. Against that, you have Swella Braverman, mm. who is I mean, uh, you know, I mean, um, and that, I Rwand-
2: that Rwandan policy is he likely to to pursue that? She certainly seems like she wants to.
1: I think he will Mm. but there's other things he's going to row back on other things he's going to row back on I mean uh, for example he he sacked Reese mogg or Reese mogg knew knew the sack was coming and again pragmatically there's this um, crazy extraordinary bill um, kind of to reclaim all eu law and, mm. uh, by the end of next year and there's you know approaching 4000 bits of regulation and legislation which include you know the safety of aeroplanes the safety of women's cosmetics etc cetera, etc cetera, um, which you, if you try to repeal them um, in 15 months could leave you at the next year with kind of major health and safety ex- uh, kind of um, issues for example um, we the 48 hour week i mean in the hospitality sector workers love that i mean because otherwise you get to work 80 90 hour weeks and i and i kind of know from people kind of who work in the, in the sector how terrified they are that that's going to be scrapped at the end of next year so you know but he's decided um, to stop and review Again, the pragmatist—that—that—that mm, mm. that, that actually could kind of blow up in your face. You know, you—you don't.
2: We spent a lot of time actually uh, on this program one day analyzing that and the objectives around it with some senior legal experts from the UK. And the ultimate, you know, the, the conclusion was that it was designed to to both give uh, Jacob rees moggs a job and to spend their time talking about how awful EU policy and regulation was, but ultimately, that it wouldn't really happen. So, yeah, again, that pragmatism kicking in. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to Will Hutton about the new UK Prime Minister and his cabinet, which was appointed earlier this week. Can I turn briefly... Uh, if I can, Will, for a second, to Northern Ireland. Uh, We saw the triggering of elections in Northern Ireland this week because they couldn't, you know, uh, find agreement on the Assembly. Where do you think Northern Ireland is going to feature or will it feature in Rishi Sunak's thinking?
1: Rishi Sunak um, uh, is an ex-Treasury, is ex-Chancellor. We've spoken about his pragmatism. Um, He knows damn well. That if, if Britain's going to get any kind of economic growth um, and kind of soften the recession uh, and the collapse in living standards in the next 18 months or two years that Britain has to have uh, a much more cordial relationship and especially a trading relationship with the European Union um, and I, and uh, is he going to put is he going to risk a trade war is he going to risk antagonizing the EU Um for the dup brutally mm. and the pragmatism the pragmatism in, in him will say no much more important to the uk is membership of the eu horizon program that's the collaboration in the eu between um you know all the kind of research centers and universities on science programs which is which is the world's biggest collaborative science program by the way mm. and very important to be in you're in it we're not um and actually um, he, wa- he wants to get in that. So my own view is that um, you know I, I doubt the DUP will do that well in these uh, elections. I mean, you're closer to it than me, but that would be my view. Um, and I think that uh, and that open and I think they're overplaying their hand um, in actually holding out for something impossible. Mm. Um, I think there is there is a settlement on the cards in which the Northern Ireland can be can retain some uh, access to the, to the to the single market and pass through of goods, um, as well as being in the UK single market, and that's going to be very good for inward investment to Northern Ireland, um, and a lot of business people in Northern Ireland want that. And pragmatically, you know, Sunac will lean into that. So that is my view.
2: Yeah, you're right. There's lots of references here about direct rule and joint authority at the moment. But the reality is, if they do uh, go to the polls, then the situation won't really change. Just turning back to the Cabinet uh, and Rishi Sunak and what he wants to do, we saw that Jeremy Hunt announced that he wouldn't hold a full statement, an autumn statement, until November the 17th. Is that, you know, more of a sign that... This pragmatism is kicking in already, and that they're going to put their foot on the ball and settle things a little bit before they do something that is ultimately designed to fix the last problem they created themselves.
1: Well, that's right, exactly right. I mean, um, they've noticed. I mean, you know, um, I mean, when things were when 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 was at, was at its mad, lunatic heights, I mean, you had an expectation interest rates could go up to six percent. You had kind of yields on thirty-year debt at five percent. You had kind of um, Mortgages being taken off the table, fixed rate mortgages had not uh, doubled. They trebled, actually. They gone from 2 to 6% in the space of you know, a fortnight. I mean, it was incredible. Um, but actually, things have calmed down and actually um as i said earlier i mean that means that actually the cost of borrowing money and you're talking about borrowing with the support package for energy i mean you're you're talking about kind of you know you, you, the, bo- the sums are eye-watering yeah. i mean they're north of 250 billion they're close to, close to 300 billion and so if the interest rate goes down you save money so what they're doing is they're trying to price in that they're trying to price that in um to the um, Office of Budget Responsibilities calculations so that they m- may obviate the need for kind of very damaging spending cuts. So, you know, the, and they're, they're also kind of pausing about all the things they think they might do. I think they're not going to index old age pensions to the 10%. I think they're going to, their old age pensions will just go up by, so this famous triple lock will get, will get um, um, knocked over the head for a second year running. I think soon it will do that. That's a good decision, by the way. Um, so I think, on the, you know, they're just kind of, you know, Let's not rush this out, guys. Mm. Let's just kind of, you know... And that's Sunak. Sunak will want to go, you know, he wants to sit down with Hunt and senior officials and go through that, the, the budget, you know, yeah. page by page and evaluate the political options, that and then make his own mind about what he wants to do with it. So, I, you know... Actually, you know, it was originally going to be at the end of November. Um, it brought forward to October by Trust and Quatang, So putting it in the middle of November is, is halfway back to where it would have been anyway.
2: Yeah, well, he'd probably only get one chance to deal with all these eye-watering challenges. But dare I say it, Will, you sound a little bit more optimistic this time than the last time we spoke to you. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That's
1: Will Hutton. Well, I think... <laughs> only fractionally. Only, only fractionally. <laughs> just, yeah, just, just less pessimistic. I think. <laughs> well, that's good.
2: We'll take that. That's Will Hutton okay. from the Guardian and the Observer. Will, thank you very much for joining us today. Cheers.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Annie. Bye.
2: Bye. But that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. Next week, they can't see the wood for the trees. We'll be talking about why the government is not doing enough to support local forestry. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email us at takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Hugo Da Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof. And then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record and all your Sunday newspapers. But for now, from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.